We're in the last chapter of our series through the first of the pastoral epistles. There's three of them. We're doing 1 Timothy, and we're about to head into 2 Timothy. And this is the last chapter of 1 Timothy, and we'll split it in two. We'll cover another portion next next week. But let's read the text together, and then we will... um, We'll, we'll try to understand more about the context before we really look at, at what this scripture is, is teaching, communicating. So it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So as we come near the... uh, end of this letter, Paul has been just almost like rapid fire, just giving instructions to Timothy. And it's tempting to think like they're not connected, but really they are connected. This is one letter. The problem is still the same. It's still the problem of false teachers. But I think sometimes we forget something about false teachers in our day. And one of the things we forget about false teachers is that false teachers don't look false. If false teachers look false, they would be easy. You know, they come in and there would be a, you know, hello, my name is Joe and I'm a false teacher. You know, it'd be really obvious. But the reason that false teachers are a problem is because false teachers look true. They sound true. If you remember the last part that John covered last week in chapter 5, it talked about how sometimes sin and evil doesn't just show up right away. And sometimes goodness doesn't just show up right away. It's not obvious. And so if you're somebody who's like, yeah, I want to make a quick decision about things, about somebody, about their character, it's, it's a problem. And it's especially a problem not just for people in the world. It's especially a problem for people in the church and especially people who don't know truth. Because what we find in the world today is that there's a lot of churches. They speak the language of Christianity. They speak 
the language of truth, but they don't live that way. They don't operate that way. They operate according to the way of the world. And this isn't new. A lot of people get confused. They go like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't like this in my day. No, it was like this in your day. You just didn't have the internet to blab it to the whole world about, you know, these things. It's not that all of a sudden churches are struggling with all this. There are problems churches are struggling with today that are new, but it's, it's, that's not the issue. It's that you just didn't know about it. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, you know, the internet. We didn't have, you know, people that were like reporting these things or just talking about these things. It's not new. In fact, the biggest evidence that it's not new is we're reading a letter. Understand this. We're reading a letter that's 2,000 years old. You are reading a 2,000-year-old letter and they have the problem. Don't ever think this is a new problem or this is just from those younger generations, you know, and all this other stuff that we, we sometimes do. It's not. As long as there are people who are devoted to truth and we begin to see the benefits of living according to God's truth, there will be people who want to come in and take advantage of that for different reasons. And so this letter has been all to, to Timothy. It's been how to deal with this. And, and you notice he doesn't, he, he, there's not a lot of emphasis on Timothy, you need to call those false teachers into your office or you need to confront them on the streets and you need to give them, you know, what's right. No, if you look at what, what he's saying, there's two things. First thing, first thing he says is, okay, there's certain things that are happening in the church that got to be fixed. They're connected to these false teachings, but we got to fix those things. And we went through that. Um, you know, the last couple of weeks, it's been really about leadership and who you're putting in leadership and how you're not really being careful about who you're choosing to be your leaders. That was a problem. Before it was some of the ministries, how you're dealing with, with widows and, you know, how you as a church are stealing the ministry from Christian families to their, to their own families. There, were, there was problems in their worship, both with how, you know, some of the men who were supposed to be up there leading and praying, you know, had just gotten finished having, you know, huge arguments and being divisive, you know, out in the, you know, out in the courtyard or out in the streets. And then they're coming in and acting like they're so holy. Or some of the, especially the younger women who were, who were trying to like make this about them, make this about, you know, the way they dressed, the way they acted, what their opinions were. So many issues. So that was one thing. Deal with those things. You got to deal with them. You got to fix them. But the more important thing he's saying, the more important thing he's saying, and you can see it on the front of the bulletin, the way we said it, the more important thing he's saying is, Timothy, 
Instead of calling out the false teachers, teach truth to the church. Relentlessly teach truth to the church. This this title of relentless truth, I, I think it hits in three ways. I think on one hand, it's, it's Timothy, teach the truth relentlessly. But it's also church, be students of the truth relentlessly. Both of those things are important. That we have that discipleship, that's, that's, that teaching and studying and being relentless about it. We never have enough truth. The second thing, when it comes to this relentless truth, it's this relentlessly live the truth. Constantly be thinking about what you're learning, about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God, what it means to be holy, what it means to to love one another the way God would love. Keep learning that, but also keep living it. Keep putting it in practice. One of the biggest insults that there could ever be about this church, to me, would be if someone came who was here maybe when I first came eight years ago, or 15 years ago before I came, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and if somebody said, church is exactly like it was when I was there. And they usually mean that in a positive way. That is not a compliment. If we are devoted to growing in the Lord, if we're devoted to maturing as a community of of Christians, of disciples, this should feel different after years. We should be different. We shouldn't be the same person we were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even two years ago. There's going to be things about us that are the same, yes. But we learn, we're disciples. We want to relentlessly live the truth because we want the truth to show up in our lives. Not simply because it makes our lives better, but because it gets to the third part of relentless truth. Relentless study, Relentless teaching, relentless living, relentless proclaiming of the truth. Unapologetically proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Relentless truth. The more everybody is a relentless pursuer of God's truth in his word, the easier it is for us to spot when the false teacher shows up. It will be like they have a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Joe. I'm a false teacher. Because everybody will go simultaneously. Maybe it's your right eyebrow. Maybe it's your left eyebrow. But it will go up. And then you'll be like thinking or maybe you'll whisper, Did he really just say what I think he said? Isn't that the opposite of what the Bible teaches? Yeah, it's important. That's what 
Paul is telling Timothy 2,000 years ago, he would tell us the same thing today. We get this weird little thing, right? Verses 1 and 2 that, that just kind of seems to interrupt the flow. But, you know, I think there's a really important reason that Paul is putting this here. And I actually think there's a couple of reasons. But he starts talking about bond servants, which is, the word is actually doulos, which means slave. But we don't use the word slave sometimes in the Bible because it just, it gives the wrong impression. Because as soon as we say slave in 21st century America, we think about maybe 19th century slavery. And it's, this is something, there's similarities, obviously, they're still slaves. But it's very different in first century Rome. So oftentimes the phrase bondservant will be used to kind of help us not make that mistake. But it's interesting. In verse 1, Paul is giving kind of general instructions to the bondservants. Whether they're slaves, whether their masters are Christians or not, he says you need to treat them as they're worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor. And he says, here's why. So that the name of God and the teaching, and he's talking about the teachings of the church, teachings of faith, the doctrines, may not be reviled. He's saying, especially if your master's not a Christian, you should regard them with all honor. Because if you don't, if you... If you either act the same way you acted before, or if you start to dishonor them, what is that master going to think about the difference Christ has made in your life? It's not going to be good. He's saying, no. If Christ has really changed your life, if he's really come in and and done, and you've been you, what he's promised to do, and given you his spirit, and his spirit has poured out his love upon you, then you will love your boss, your master, even if your master is not a Christian. And then he says, You look at believing masters, your master is a Christian. Remember, these guys would sometimes be in the same church. And it's not like here, where like, you know, if you were the master, maybe you're sitting in the back over there, and you know, if you're the servant, you're over here, and you never ran into each other. They're meeting in people's houses. They may be sitting right next to each other. They can see each other. They're eating together. There could even be situations where the, in the church, the slave is the more mature Christian, perhaps even a leader in the church. And their master is maybe a new believer. All kind of things could be happening. And Paul says, tell them not to be disrespectful. Don't just say, hey, because we're brothers, I don't have to respect my master. Instead, he says, you should want to serve all the better. Because, you know, when you're serving your unbelieving master... You know, it's as an example, like a, an example of what Christ has done. And, and you're, you know, in a way proclaiming the gospel in your service. But he said, when you're helping and you're serving 
your Christian master the right way, it's already what's expected of you in the church. Already, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians a few years earlier, he had said, be mutually subordinate to one another, serve one another. That's what you should do. You're helping a brother. You're helping someone who is beloved. It's different. It's different. It should be different. Because what Paul is doing is he's, he's repeating, re-emphasizing something he talked about in his letter to the Ephesians probably anywhere from two, three, four, five years earlier. He talked about husbands and wives, slaves and masters, parents and children. And the overarching principle in all of those, and it's the same here, is he's saying, let your relationship to Christ be the context for all other relationships. Your relationship to Christ, he's saying, if your master is a Christian and you're a Christian, your relationship to Christ should be the context for your relationship. It doesn't replace the relationship, master and slaves, that relationship is still there, but it's master and slave in the context of Christ. And you might be going, well, why isn't he talking to the masters? And we always try to work this in. I don't know if John and I do this intentionally, but we always, this is our paid advertisement for Wednesday night. We covered this on Wednesday night. We went much more into depth on this on Wednesday night. Why isn't he talking to the masters? Well, back in the letter to the Ephesians, he did talk to the masters. And he gave the masters a really hard thing to do. He said, all these things to the slaves, similar to what he said here. And then he said, masters, you do the same. You serve your slaves. You treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, do the same. Why isn't he saying it here? Probably because the masters were doing it. They got it right. He's only talking to the people that are still doing it wrong. The masters somehow have gotten this and they're treating their, their, their household servants, they're treating them as brothers and sisters in Christ. They got it right. But it's let your relationship to Christ be the context for all other relationships. And what this it harkens back to is this idea that when we become Christians, we shouldn't really be choosing to love or not to love. It should be in our very nature to love. The question that we always have to ask, though, is how do we show love in different relationships at different times with different people? Love is not always going to look the same. It must always be love, and it must always be God's love, and it must always be perfect and unconditional, and it must be consistent with His holy truth of His Word. But it's going to look different depending on who you're loving, when you're loving them, the context of the relationship. Well, we need to make sure we're getting right because we're going to get the expression of love wrong. But what we need to make sure we get right 
We need to make sure it is an expression of God's love. Knowing that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. Or knowing we're going to get it right, but we're just going to do it poorly. Paul is drawing this contrast between, this is the way the world is. The world says there has to be this conflict between master and slave. And Paul's saying, no. Even if Christ just changes one of the two, the relationship should change. Because what's being introduced into that relationship is God's love. It's even more glorious when master and slave are introducing God's love into the relationship. But if just one is, there should be a change. It's the difference between the way of the world and the way of Christ. It's, it's a demonstration of what's happening in our lives when we truly become Christians. And if you look at verse 1, you know, this is one of Paul's main principles. That what we do, yes, it should be done from God's love. But we should also know that nothing should get in the way of the spread of the gospel. Why do I think he stuck it in here? I think he sticks it in here right after what he talked about in chapter 5. If you look at the end of chapter 5, what John preached on last week, he's talking about, um, you know, he starts, starts off by talking about how the pastor and the, and the, or the elders, he calls them, but the elders slash pastors and the church should relate to one another. And he says, church, you should, to the elders who rule well, double honor. But then he goes on and he talks about, you know, but if you feel like one of them's offended you or done something against you, here's how you handle it. And if it comes to the point that you have to rebuke them, this is how you do it. So he's talking about what happens when there's, when there's some kind of problem. But I think here, this is Paul's not-so-subtle reminder to the church to say, you chose that person to be your leader. You chose him to be your leader. And yes, you have an obligation to care for them, and you also have an obligation to help them if they're going in the wrong direction or if they're, if they're hurting you or hurting people. But you also, if you want to show the gospel, you need to see them as someone in authority over you that you want to demonstrate the correct honor. That even if you have to rebuke this person, you are not just rebuking somebody. You are rebuking someone that you chose and that we believe when we chose them that God chose them to be our leaders. If we go back to this general principle of letting our relationships to Christ be the context for all of our other relationships, you know, let me just tell you, how can our relationships to Christ be the context for all our other relationships if we don't know each other's relationships to Christ? If, 
if I, I'm not going to do this, so don't, don't raise your hand. But if I were to ask you, how many of you know the Christ, I'm using this phrase, I'm not, uh, make sure you understand it, but the Christ story. How many of you know the Christ story, the story of, of, of someone's coming to Christ and walk with Christ? How many of you know the Christ story of at least five people in this room? How many of you know the Christ story of at least one other person in this room? And those of you who are visiting, you're excused because it's your first day. You've only had like, you know, a few minutes. People who've been at this church for years and don't know the Christ story of other people who've been at the church for years, how can we have fellowship? How can we have unity? How can we let our relationships to Christ be the context for all our other relationships when we don't know each other's relationships to Christ? It's important. If you want that action of the takeaway, that's where it begins. The second thing Paul does here, he does in verse 3, he says, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's saying at the, at the heart of the false teaching is pride. At the heart is a desire for personal gain. At the heart is a lack of understanding. And again, this is what makes it hard because the false teacher can make it appear like they understand. But the more that a church is, is learning and immersed in the truth of God's word, the easier it is to spot the false teacher who comes along with the thing that sounds right. I don't think any of you are old enough to, and if you are, you can tell us the story later, but to remember the, you know, the, the different vendors that used to travel from, you know, town to town, and they would always have these elixirs, you know, that would grow hair or, you know, solve all kinds of health problems. And they would come into the town and, you know, no one has access to medical information, health. The research is, is you know, it, it, it's, it wasn't really being done that way. And it's, if it was, it wasn't widespread. People would buy this stuff all the time. Why? Because it sounds good. It sounds true. It sounds right. That still happens today. And there's less of an excuse today, but you know, it still happens today where people are buying all these cures and all these trends that sound right and sound good. But Paul is telling Timothy, even if their false teaching is buried somewhere. What you will also know the false teacher by is because of the pride, because of the lack of understanding, because of the desire for personal gain. 
And he says, you know, you might just think, oh, no, no, that's just, it's a false teaching, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's okay. It's not that important. He, he says, no, it is important. If you look in verse 4, he goes, this person has an unhealthy craving for controversy. They like to create controversy, and one of the, this is the strategy. I create controversy because it makes questions in your mind. And guess what? As soon as I make the question, I'm going to provide you with the answer. I might not get everybody, but I'm going to get some people. And I'm especially going to get the people who don't really know the truth. Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? What it started with? Did God really say? That's how it started. That's all it took. But he, Paul says, look, because of this unhealthy craving for controversy, this lack of understanding, this quarreling about just words, he says, this is what happens. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. That's what happens. Knowing the truth, teaching the truth, living the truth, it matters. It's the struggle like the modern church in America has. The modern church in America evaluates pastors often on how, numeric, how much numerical success the church is having. What's the best church? Well, it must be the biggest. It must be the one that's growing. It must be the one that's, that's most popular because that's how we measure everything else in our society. False teachers love that. And I'm not saying every big, popular, successful megachurch is led by false teachers. I'm just saying, if you believe God's blessing is connected to numerical success, false teachers love you. False teachers have the great advantage that, that John and I don't have. We're trying to teach you the truth that's in God's word, whether it's, it's something that is soothing your soul, bringing you comfort, or whether it's confronting you in your sin, whether it's, it's, it's helping us to grow and mature and have a richer love for one another, or whether it's pointing out how, how we need to confront our world. We don't have the advantage that the false teacher has. Because what the false teacher can do, is just make little tweaks to make the truth a little more acceptable. Or perhaps, let's just not talk about it at all. Let's just avoid it altogether. We need to understand that there are certainly things that reveal the false teachers to us, but that we are, are called and, and, and we have been given resources to be able to identify them.
and we return to this same kind of you know action that we need to take and it's you know it's the words of of paul that we find in some of this where it's like we need to know the truth we not we don't just got to know each other's christ stories that's important but we need to know the truth and we need to guard our hearts when we know the truth it helps us to identify the false teachings but we also paul reminds timothy guard your heart guard your heart because it would be easy for some of those same things to creep into your own life that desire for personal gain that little bit of pride that gets into your life you're walking into the same trap that the false teachers are in we're all susceptible we're going to be tempted by different things paul specifically going to talk about money or riches but it's not always just money or riches we can be tempted by a lot of different things that's why paul has this great summary statement in verse 6 where he says just after he says that these false teachers think godliness is a means of gain so they think like oh we can put on this godly act so that we can gain more power or more stuff in verse 6 paul gives this great summary twists that and he brings it back to truth and he says but godliness with contentment is great gain godliness with contentment is great gain at the heart of the teacher of truth which can include many of you but at the heart of the teacher of truth and certainly should include your pastors is godliness with contentment what does that mean Paul doesn't define godliness here but he defines it in other places and again Wednesday night we unpack this more but today just let me tell you by godliness he's not talking about they walk around kind of you know very pious when he talks about godliness he's he's saying like they they have the love of god they have the fruit of the spirit they they have the right heart even if they don't always do the right thing they have the right heart and they're going to the fix the wrong things because they have the right heart but godliness is this is this is more like the the kind of the the character of god and and you know as somebody who's a pastor you don't have to send me an email and say you fall short of this i i know i do okay it's you know none of us are going to do this perfectly not even get close to it but he says godliness so what should be evident to them is not conceit not being puffed up but it's it's love for others not self love And then the second thing he says is contentment and he defines contentment for us here. He doesn't define godliness but he defines contentment. He says he says you know we brought nothing into the world we take nothing out of it if we have food and clothing with these we would be content. That 
that the, the, the teacher of truth is content that God is meeting, just meeting their needs. Needs are met. And you might go like, oh, all right. We talk about the budget. Let's just make sure the pastor has just enough for his needs because we don't want him sinning. No. This is, this is actually, it's kind of the balance to what he said in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he's talking to the church. Here, he's talking to Timothy and saying what the teachers, the leaders should be like. To the church, he said, church, elders who rule well deserve double honor. You need to be thinking in terms of double honor. If you don't know what that is, listen to John's sermon last week. He explained it. And then he says, pastors, be content. Be content. Seek godliness. Develop godliness in your church. And be content. You see... In a healthy church relationship, if church is always seeking to double honor their pastors, and pastors have the heart of being content, neither side takes advantage of the other. You make just one of them unhealthy, it's a problem. For the false teacher, I mean, for the, on the teacher side, you're setting yourself up for a false teacher. On the church's side, it's the church's is going against God's word. And not only that, one of the reasons that the church is told to give double honor is because it's not just about that person. It's not just about that pastor, that leader. It's a demonstration by the church of saying, we value God's word so much that we value the people that are most responsible for teaching us. It's a demonstration of our value for God and our value for his word. But for the teacher of truth, as opposed to the false teacher, where you see, you'll eventually see pride and the desire for personal gain teacher of truth, you're going to see godliness, and you're going to see contentment. And in fact, you're not just going to see godliness in that person. If you look in verse 3, he talks in the negative about the person who teaches the false doctrine. And he says that this false doctrine, this different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, this different doctrine is not going to produce godliness in the church. Again, remember what, what Paul wrote at the end of chapter 5 where he said, the bad doesn't always show up right away, the good doesn't always show up right away. So it's not like, oh look, it seems like it's having an effect for the first you know, few days, few weeks. Paul saying, eventually false teaching is going to devolve into what we see in, in verse 4. 
but teaching truth is going to more and more give a spirit in the whole church of godliness with contentment. And this is the last point. The last point, and we're going to talk about this more last week. But we look at the end and Paul talks about this trap that people fall into. And the reason they fall into this trap is because at the heart of, and he's talking specifically about the teachers here, at the heart is this love for money, this desire to be rich. And what Paul's going to unpack more for Timothy, and we'll talk about it more next week, is that true Christians treasure what God treasures. True Christians treasure what God treasures. And one of the things that Paul's emphasizing that God treasures is godliness. It's why godliness is not just, oh, our pastors exhibit God's love, God's heart, God's spirit. It's that we all do. We treasure it. It's essential to our church. It's evidence of the, of the life of the Spirit in our church. It's the true need. It's why false teachings are so dangerous because they lead away from it. It also keeps us humble. A lot of false teachings in modern times center around the whole idea of grace. You know, we just sang that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is a great unpacking of God's grace, understanding of God's grace. That salvation cannot be earned. It's not deserved. That salvation is truly something that God gives to us. That godliness is a gift from God. The ability to love one another as only God can love is a gift from God. And we need to treasure that gift. Don't, don't miss what Paul's doing. He's connecting true doctrine, true Christianity, true faith with godliness. It's not separate. It's not like, hey, let's just all learn to love one another. We can forget that Bible thing. No. It's this connection that, that without God, without salvation through Jesus Christ, we cannot even possibly love the way God loves or have godliness. And without his word, we're lost to know how to live this life out. And, and what we do know from what Paul is saying, even though he doesn't define godliness for us, he defines what runs in the opposite direction. That if you have this, you cannot have this. Jesus said the same thing. You cannot serve two masters. So if you have the love of money in your life, you can never really know godliness. They're incompatible. And he's warning Timothy. He says, this is the problem. It starts with the love of money. By the way, love of money, anybody can have the love of money. People who are multi-billionaires and people who 
don't have any money. They can all be lovers of money. Paul's really using this to talk about people who are just so like wanting to follow the ways of the world. But he's using love of money because it's one that's very common to us. It's one that shows up in so many people's lives. And he says, it's the root of all evil. And he talks about how that, it's a trap. That the love of money leads to temptation. The temptation, you get into a trap. And once you're in that trap, it says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but I hope you are, with what we've been doing on Sunday mornings. We've been reading through Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the largest like chapter in the Bible. We've been reading it for a couple months, and we're going to read it for a couple months more. But you should be noticing what Psalm 119 is all about. It's about treasuring what God treasures. It's about treasuring his word. Today, Eric read that, that the psalmist is saying, we value your word over many pieces of gold or silver. There's other places in Psalm 119 where it describes and it says, your word is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Do we value what God values? Do we treasure what God treasures? If we don't, we place ourselves, we place our churches at risk. And really the action is the same thing. It's this idea of we need to be discipled. We need to be we need to be students, followers of Christ. But we also need to be understanding that we're not just acquiring information. That if we're truly disciples, we are being changed. And we're not just being changed or transformed just to be changed or transformed. And this is the part where I think some people don't ask this question because I think more and more of the people in our church get it. They are being equipped. They're being discipled. And they may not be ready yet, but they're getting close. But the question you need to be asking is, God, what are you preparing for me to do in this church? We need more and more people who are being discipled and properly prepared to serve and to teach in this church. Last night at our growth group, Chinoa asked the question that John raised. And one of them is, in one of the questions was something along the lines of, you know, do you feel, you know, honored? Do you feel, or, or how is that, you know, how can we do that? And I think this harkens back to what we talked about earlier about how if the church has the right attitude, the pastors have the right attitude that that makes for a healthy church. And so all that I can tell you, not just from this week's passage, but last week's passage, is that church, if you want to honor your pastor, if you want to honor your pastors, honor by being 
students, by learning, by following the truth of God's word as you learn. So you're learning from your pastors. You're following as they give instruction. And yes, you're caring for them. But part of that comes from from knowing your pastor. Do you know what pastors do? Do you know what they struggle with? Do you know, even when they're not struggling, the concerns that they have? And from pastors, we're called to lead well, to teach, to teach truth and teach truth only. And that what we should be trying to focus on in our church is not making sure we have enough money, making sure we have enough people, making sure we're growing, expanding, looking for some vision of physical or material development. But what we should be focusing on is is the teaching of God's truth, is discipleship in our, tr- in our church helping our church become more and more godly? That it is about the godliness in our church that comes from, that comes from being a disciple and be, from the Spirit working in our lives. I love to, to be able to preach these sermons to you because... I'm not preaching to a church that doesn't get any of this. It's really awkward and weird when you're preaching a sermon like this to a church that's, they're, they're, they're like, they're already mad at their pastors or, you know, there's all kind of fighting. And then, you know, they're like, oh, why is pastor telling us this? Like, I love the fact that so many of you are already on the path. You're already growing. You're already not just thinking about today, but you're looking ahead to what God is preparing you for. Include John and I in that journey. Include us in that discussion. Talk to us. We'll pray with you. We have no desire to fill positions at this church unless they are being filled by people who God has prepared to do these things. You will never feel guilted or pressured from us. What I hope you will feel is loved and supported and know that we will walk with you.